Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. It is uh, so good to kind of be with you. Uh, I don't even know what day this is. You know, we were doing our day countdown, and I don't know what day this is. Maybe they can pull that up somewhere and figure figure it all out. It's just been a long, long time. Well, uh, I'm here to wish you a fantastic July 4th weekend. You know, thinking about it, our uh, our liberties here in America, this 300-year or so experiment that we've had, uh, has been pretty extraordinary. And I think about the freedoms that we do have, and I wonder uh, how I would use, how I would best use that freedom. And I can think of no better way as I think about and ponder it this morning, uh, and the liberties that we really do have. I think about 1 Corinthians 9.23, which Paul just says, we do all things for the sake of the gospel. I wonder as we look back, and as God looks back over our lives, I wonder if he'll ask, what did you do with the kind of freedom, the 21st century place I put you in, had the freedom of expression and religion, what did you do with that? It was kind of unprecedented in human history, that kind of liberty to share the gospel and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we'll talk a little bit about this morning. So anyway, I hope you're enjoying your freedom and your celebration this weekend. And I want to thank everybody, and I hope you're enjoying this worship. You know, they worked hard to try to get this worship uh, as to be part of this morning's wor- uh, uh, message. So uh, anyway, some of you were really requesting that. So thanks, Pete and the team and everybody who's been working on that. Uh, this morning, uh, I want to move into something that, uh, a two-week series that I'm going to do, uh, God willing, that's called, I guess maybe the world could end, but it's good. Is this the end of the world? You know, I, I've had a number of people come to me and say, well, what do you think? Uh, uh, what's coming down the pike? I mean, are these the signs of the times? I mean, there's earthquakes and of course there's pestilence and plague and famine and in and, and different parts of the world. And we're hearing about, uh, hearing again, hearing about earthquakes and there's this tsunamis that happened a number of years back and in Japan and other places and uh, in Indonesia, I believe, in the Philippines. And as we look back, we go, are these the signs of the time? Is it the end of the world? Is now the time? You know, if you look back over human history, uh, there have been extraordinary moments that people said, this is it. This is the end of days. And I want to talk for the next couple of weeks a little bit about the end of the world, about the apocalypse. Strangely enough, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in the book of Revelation. Many of you would think, well, this is going to be an exposition of the book of Revelation. I think there's something a little bit more profound. Our culture is completely inundated with apocalyptic movies. I was kind of trying to kind of refresh my mind this week about all the movies about either a apocalyptic world and the, the countdown to nuclear apocalypse or a, a post-apocalyptic uh, movies that talk about, well, what's going to happen after everything, you know, implodes? Will there be a few people that will come out of their holes and try to reignite human history? Or, or will the earth just be uninhabitable and will we just cease to exist? You know, I think about the Terminator movies where the machines eventually, that's the picture there, the machines eventually take over and it's kind of a nuclear countdown or just a nuclear apocalypse, something political decisions can't uh, be made and one country rises against another, not too different than what we were going through with the Reagan years and this, you know, this evil empire he called Russia. And now they're kind of the dissolution of that. But there were many prophets who were saying, this is it. This is nuclear holocaust. Jesus is coming back. The end of the world is now. And so uh, movies like the war games uh, that, that came around, uh, uh, the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, and, and he said, uh, he, he, he emerged and uh, this was the countdown and they were right to the point of pushing the buttons and all the, all the nuclear thing. Was it gonna, is it going to be a nuclear end to the human experience? 
You know, I don't know. I think about movies too, about uh, what happens if aliens come. You know, The War of the Worlds, a Tom Cruise movie here not too long ago. Uh, aliens come and inhabit and take over and and uh, begin to live off this uh, the power or the energy or the sources. I mean, so you've got aliens, you've got nuclear, you've got the machines take over. You've even got Planet of the Apes in a long series. You know, the apes take over, the animals themselves take over. Our culture is consumed with this this idea of what is the fate of mankind. What and might it happen? in our lifetime. Well, I think there are a number of ways that we can think about this, and I want to go back historically. We're going to do a little bit of church history today. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the various views on the end of the world. First of all, obviously, there's the atheistic worldview, uh, which basically posits that we we all started as just an accident. You know, I'm I'm this is an accidental thing here. I mean, it's a it's an evolved accident, and it's a fascinating accident, and it's it is amazing that we can actually self-discover. The very accident can discover that it's an accident. I mean, they're impressed by that. And they say, but it may all end with an asteroid striking the world. Every once in a while we'll get something that'll come fairly near the earth. I mean, it may it might even be millions of miles away, but it could change courses a little bit, maybe strike, maybe maybe that's what happened with the extinction of the dinosaurs, and maybe that'll happen again, and maybe there won't be any great comeback, or maybe it'll be just some kind of massive super volcano that will make the planet uninhabitable. No, no life can grow anymore after a super volcano, or maybe we'll, the sun will just run out of energy, or, uh, uh, and of course, if we understand the life cycle of stars, eventually that'll happen, certainly not in our lifetime, but billions of years from now, potentially the sun is no longer able to have, you know, this kind of fusion that produces the energy that finds its way to our service for photosynthesis for plants, and then, you know, life just, just is extinct. You know, there, there are a lot of different ideas about this and, and will, we, will we just implode for some unknown reason? And atheists would say that and they would say, you know, you religion, you religious people are just your fanciful machinations about you can't live with the reality that we're an accident and it may be an accident that brings this whole human experiment to uh, a quick halt. You know, all you religious people, you don't have anything, so you just look up in the sky, you make up gods and... And, uh, and, and as a result, you somehow feel better about your short, unimportant, accidental existence. Is that what it is? Well, we're going to look at a few things this morning and specifically some of the comments that Jesus made. You need to understand as well the prophets had talked about some, what, I would, what I'm referring to this morning as super signs of the end times. Now, look, our culture is saturated in end times books. It's like a cottage industry. And people, I mean, I, in my own lifetime, I think about Hal Lindsey. I had lunch with Hal Lindsey one time, just kind of exploring where he was from. He wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. And he, you know, no, though he's never been a date setter to my knowledge, he's talking about, you know, always everybody's trying to figure out which countries are uh, this and which countries are that, going back into the prophets, going into Revelation, trying to put all this together and come up with some kind of end time scenario. This has happened, as we'll see in a minute, throughout human history, throughout the church's history, as a matter of fact, uh, and people are fascinated. How will this thing end? And it's certainly as we look at the, the civil unrest that is kind of around us today and, and some of the, the racism that now, now being really addressed in our, in our lifetimes and, and a lot of these other things that are kind of coming down the pike, not the least of which is uh, 
the coronavirus and all these other things. And, and people begin to ask and preachers begin to preach, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. And I want to try to move past some of that, but also look. So an atheist view of this would be, oh, yeah, we're all an accident. We'll all, it'll all end in an accident. Then, of course, we have every strain of cult through human history who's kind of risen up and for the power brokers to maintain their power, they need to say they have control over people's eternal destiny or in some ways they have some kind of doomsday scenario, heaven's gate just in our own lifetimes. Uh, the Koreshians, you know, the Waco guys from David Koresh or Jim Jones and his doomsday cult as well. I mean, those always throughout human history will rise up. There will be some kind of uh, either a profiteer or some kind of messianic figure that will rise up and say he or she knows how this is all going to come down the pike and they convince a number of people. And so every strain of cult throughout human history typically has some kind of doomsday scenario they predict the end, and people buy into it. And obviously, if you just ask your normal, secular, materialist, will there be an end? They go, I don't know, I don't care, I can't think about it, I'm only here for just a momentary time. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I mean, let's live it. We only go around once and we hear all those. So there are a lot of different views on that. Now, I also want to look this morning a little bit at church history. Now, before you kind of roll your eyes back in your head and say, church history, why do, why do we have to go there? I think it's important that you understand that the church has wrestled with not only the things that Jesus talked about, but also the book of Revelation. And people have risen up throughout church history and had different ideas about what would happen. And as a result, they've been many times catastrophic and very disillusioning to people as people began to claim these are the end of days or Jesus' return is imminent or whatever it is. These have had, you got to understand this has been going on for hundreds, even thousands of years since the time of Jesus. Those first century people, they would have been looking at this very differently, the book of Revelation. They would have seen Babylon as being Rome. They would have seen, they would have seen very different things than the way we see those things today. Many of us just think it's all in the future, but uh, we got to look back historically. What has the church believed and what has the church understood? And then what are some of the tragedies that have played out? I want to take you all the way back to the early 16th century, around 15, early 1530s, and there was um, something that happened. Actually, preceding to that, on October 31st, the Great Reformation began, 1517. Martin Luther takes his, uh, you know, the, the legendary 95 thesis and tacked it to that cathedral there in Wittenberg uh, and he said, okay, these are wrong. He was a Catholic um, a monk, as were some of the early, uh, other early great reformers. And they said, look, you can't sell indulgences. You can't buy your way out of sin. You can't, you know, the, and they really stood up against the Catholic Church. It was the very beginning of what we would call the Great Reformation. And out of that grew then, so Lutherans became kind of a disciples. And then there were some other uh, of the reformers like Zwingli, who was in Zurich. And he kind of even took it a little bit further than Luther. And then you had Bootser, who was up and actually was preaching some amazing sermons up in Cambridge and really had profound influence that to really bring reformation into the church. But many of those early reformers were not so ready to distance himself completely, especially from the idea of the church and state being combined and many other things. 
And yet, each little iteration of the Reformation brought a little bit more clarity, or at least in their minds, going back to the original way the church was. And out of this came a movement called the Anabaptist movement, of which even Church at the Red Door, some of our practices are uh, actually in the downline of the Anabaptist movement. I'll describe some of those in a minute. Now, Anabaptist means to rebaptize. So you gotta understand it was a huge thing when they began to read their Bible and go, wait a minute, people were being baptized, not as infants in the New Testament. These Jews weren't advocating infant baptism. They were saying this is a personal decision that you make to follow Jesus, and then you're then you determined to be baptized. And they were reading these things with fresh eyes, and they say, this is how... Uh, the apostolic church was birthed, and we've drifted from that. And so there, those that were strongly opposed to being baptized as adults, many of the early reformers didn't like this idea at all, not the least of which was Zwingli in Zurich. So this Anabaptist movement began to emerge. Now, why do I bring that up in the context of the end of the world? Well, many, uh, in fact, there was one uh, in this early 1530s that was called the Munster Rebellion. Now, this was, I don't, I don't attribute this completely to the Anabaptist movement, but there was a guy, uh, a, a number of men that began to rise up, uh, and there was uh, Jan Matthias, and he, he went into Munster, Germany, in this city, and he declared, okay, now this is the New Jerusalem. This is the kind of the end of days where we're, we're really establishing the true church. He was an Anabaptist, but he was a fanatic, and his successor would even be more fanatical. And they set up Munster as like the New Jerusalem, the New Zion. And in fact, in 1534, on Easter Sunday, he marched out. The city had been besieged by the uh, defrocked, if you will, prince bishop that was part that was an overlord and also the religious leader of Munster, a guy named Franz von Waldeck, and they had besieged the city. They were ready to completely annihilate this rebellion. And, uh, and they said, no, the God is on our side, and they walked out, and uh, they immediately slaughtered them. He, was, he went out with about 12 men outside the city, uh, believing that God would protect them because this was the end of time. This was uh, uh, Kiliasm, right? Where uh, this is uh, a, a, an idea, a, a reading of Revelation 20, where there's going to be a thousand year rule and reign. The end of the world will come as we know it, and then Jesus will set it up. And they were, they were all ready for this, uh, the Munster Rebellion. And so when he was slaughtered, there was another guy that rose up in the city, uh, a guy named von Leiber, and Jan von Leiber, and he was only 25, and he said, I, I'm the new dictate here. And he said, okay, now we're, we're communist community. All the property is shared in Munster. He goes, he reinstituted, actually made it compulsory because there were more women than men, uh, polygamy, and he took for himself 16 wives, and they said, well, this is it. This is, the, this is the rule and the reign. The world as we know it has come to an end, and eventually uh, they were began to starve, and, and eventually... Uh, Walt von Waldeck's uh, troops came in because he was in charge of the army as well. And they came in and they completely, and it was brutal. They killed them in a very, very brutal way. And they took their body parts and they, and they put them in cages up on the cathedral. I mean, this is church history. Somebody said, well, why would, you, why would you talk about this? Because we need to understand that the church historically, when I say the church and even fanatical offshoots of people who would read the Bible and they would say, it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world, and they would declare, and, and then we get things like that. And 
Now, if you fast forward about 300 or so years into the future, there was a group uh, that were following the writings of a farmer named William Miller. They were called the Millerites. And it was just a small little thing. He began to, he began to unpack his view of Revelation and the end of times and unpack all the Bible. And he was absolutely convinced that the end of the world was now and that he began to set some dates uh, all through 1833 and forward, or excuse me, 1853 and forward. And he, he began to set all these dates. And, and there was a guy named Himes who was a friend of his who was say, hey, we should, we should get this out. And they started publicizing and getting a publication that they printed, and it was going out. And, and many different denominations said, hey, hey, this guy must be right. He's, he's unpacking these scriptures in a way that we've never heard. Uh, the end of the world is now. And, and, and there, was, there was even a place where they had 200 delegates with all kinds of denominational backgrounds. And they completely bought into this Miller, William Miller's idea of the end of the world. Amazing. And finally, he said, okay, here it is. And it was in 1984, excuse me, 19, excuse me 1844. And they were all there waiting, waiting. Today was the day. Uh, and and they call it the great disappointment. And people had, you know, sold their stuff. They had, you know, prepared to leave the earth and, and they were all there and it passed and, and eventually it dissipated because all of his date setting to the end of the world never quite happened. And yet all of his calculations, he knew he had it right. He knew he had figured it out and it just went down in flames. That Millerite movement, we don't even know about. Most people have never even heard of William Miller. Well, even in our own times, I remember back in 1988, I was only six years out of graduating from high school and I had just gotten out of college. And I remember it was a big deal. It was on Christian television and things. 88 reasons why 1988 was going to see in the rapture of the church, right? Where the church gonna somehow exits the world, exits the earth and, and uh, meets Jesus. Jesus comes back and, uh, and, and 88 reasons why. And it sold a lot, and a lot of people bought into it. It was a, it was a very interesting guy named Edgar Wisenhunt. He was actually a NASA scientist, and he had done all his calculations and figured it all out. And it was 1988, and it was going to be somewhere between you know September 11th and September 13th, which I guess is September 12th. And finally, the date set, and then they reset and reset and reset, and finally, just like the Millerites, it it didn't come to fruition. And then a lot of people, and I've met them. Trust me, you do ministry long enough. I have a friend, his wife went through a very, very challenging time because her father was absolutely convinced that the end of the world was at hand. And here it was. And, and then they, you know, it, it, it upended the family and, and the whole thing. And, and so some people get so turned off that any conversation about some biblical prophecy about the end of the world and they just turn their backs on it. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. So many prognostications have been made and so many ideas have been had about all this that you wonder, well, when is the end of the world or is it ever going to happen? Is Jesus ever going to come back or have we just made up a tale in our mind? Well, there's a couple things that I want to talk to you about this morning and I'm going to call them super signs and they are happening right under our noses, but many of them may not even be things that you traditionally think of when you think about the end of the world. The Bible definitely speaks about the end of all things. Unfortunately, the church has just not been able to get on the same page. I'm talking about the universal church not been able to get on the same page as to what this works. And everybody claims that they have God's word. Well, God's word says this, therefore, everybody has their proof text upon that 
say this is when it's going to happen. Not necessarily a specific date, but these are going to be the things that surround it and their interpretation and all these different kind of things. Well, I want to go back specifically this morning to some of the things that, that Jesus said. First of all, things that we absolutely know for sure. Number one, Jesus is going to come back. Let's just establish that. When he does, he's going to set all things right. He's going to set, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. All that is, as a follower of Jesus, I believe what Jesus said. John chapter 14, we all know it well. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, I know times look chaotic, but don't be troubled. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Some translations say plainly. I would have plainly told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So number one, undergirding factor that we know without a doubt, Jesus is going to come back one day. He's going to set all things right. He's in preparation for that moment. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And he will set up his eternal kingdom in which there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more famine, no more coronavirus. And I, everybody said, amen. I, I'm so tired of saying that word, right? Number two, the earth will at some point have a meltdown. Now, I'm going to ask, we're going to go to Salem, Oregon this morning, and I'm going to ask our precious friends, Bob and Joan Thompson from Salem, Oregon, to please read Peter and his picture of what was coming down the pike. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 13. Uh, Bob and Joan, please take it away. Take it away. Hi everyone. I'm Bob Thompson. And I'm Joan Thompson. And we are coming to you today from Salem, Oregon. We are glad to be a part of this and wish we were all together, but this is the best we can do for now and we're looking forward to the day that we can all be together again. We'll look forward to seeing all of you. Our first reading today is 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Back to you, Jeff. Okay, so what we know from that pattern, that, that, uh, the, the words in, uh, from Peter, is that, yes, there is going to be an end of the world. The elements, everything that composes the material realm, will be melt with intense heat. What does that actually mean? A lot of people have speculated maybe that's a nuclear bomb, maybe it's an asteroid. Who knows? It's going to be a fiery end to the world that we know. And yet that world will still exist, but it'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Will that be a a cataclysmic event in the entire cosmos? Will it be all new stars? What will that be? You know, nobody, every, everybody has to speculate. But Peter was pretty clear in this prophecy, said everything will have an end. So we do know that there will be an ultimate meltdown of the realm of, the, of what we see, taste, touch, and feel at some point, and everything will be recreated and new, new heavens and new earth. 
People disagree as to what that will look like. How, how what will it be? Will there still be the same mountains or not? Will it be the same uh, this? We do know that there won't be seas to divide. Is that just symbolic? We, a lot of this we don't know, but there will be a time when Jesus comes back, number one, and number two, when the things that we know will have a meltdown and there will be something new in their place. Now we're going to get to the sign that sign that is very significant and I think will be a, a, a point of delineation from a lot of the things that we try to understand. Now it's important, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 24. There are three places essentially in Scripture, Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24 that talk about uh, a lot of times in the context of Jesus' disciples going, well, what's going to be the sign of the end? And, and they're asking the same question they were 2,000 years ago to Jesus that we're asking this morning. Is this the end of the world? When is the end of the world going to come? When are you going to, well, how's all this going to work out? Well, Matthew takes a particular, uh, Jesus has a particular conversation in Matthew 24 that I want to read. Allow me if you wouldn't mind. Ver chapter 24, Matthew, verse 1. Now Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, we know historically that Jesus was prophesying that the temple would eventually be utterly destroyed. We know historically that that happened uh, 70 AD. All right, So we know for a fact that that happened under... Titus and, and they rolled in and they completely wiped out. Not one stone in the temple was left upon another. A fulfillment of prophecy, one of the reasons I don't think that our religious machinations are so fanciful when we realize that what Jesus was prophesying actually came true over and over and over. I have no reason to believe that everything he said to the end won't come to pass because of what I know that Jesus has already prophesied and we've seen fulfilled in the course of the last 2,000 years. Now, that's one reason that I don't think, I can't believe it came, certainly don't believe it came as an accident, and I don't think it will end in an accident. I'm not afraid of an asteroid. I'm not afraid of a volcano. I'm not afraid of the machines taking over, and I'm not even afraid of the apes taking over. I know that Jesus controls through his sovereignty, and the Father's sovereignty controls everything that's coming down the pike. Jesus prophesied the temple. There's no reason he can't prophesy the rest. He says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age or the end of the world or the end as we know it, this, this time, this momentary time where you're not uh, ruling? And Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. We've just talked about a lot of deception, a lot of deceptive things that have happened through human history, whether they're cults or really bad prognostications made by uh, church people or whatever, he says, make sure no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. We've had many messiahs that have emerged through the years. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, we've, that's certainly been the case really for 2,000 years. See to it that no one is alarmed. In other words, don't be freaking out about all this. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Boy, is that just uh, the human history, right? There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginning of birth pains. 
Then you will be handed over and be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. So there will be an end-time persecution. Now we are, by the way, I don't have time to get into this, but we are in these last days. People have been persecuted for Christ for 2,000 years. People have lost their lives. Even today, someone will lose their life in the name of Jesus somewhere around the world. The freedoms that we're celebrating on this July 4th, we may not always have these freedoms. We do now, but many in the world don't. It says, and at that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and they'll deceive a lot of people, but because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I think many of us can sense worldwide, boy, there's just a, you know, this. we feel like we're coming together as one, but the more, the more it feels that we're just so divided and people are so caustic and cynical, it's so challenging. I can feel that in my own heart sometimes. I don't have the kind of empathy that I know I should, and I think, boy, I need this new heart that Jesus promised. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this is the important and operative word, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What has to happen according to Jesus for the end to come? Well, the gospel has to be preached to every nation. That wasn't even conceivable during the time of the first century church. I don't know what they thought as they were writing this down and said, remember when Jesus said this? The whole world, I mean, they were just trying to, they couldn't even, they couldn't even press their own Jewish brethren, most of them, that Jesus was the Messiah. And somehow this gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth before he comes back. I don't know what they were thinking. But it must have been, seemed like an overwhelming task. You know, in our day, it's happening more and more. I was thinking I was thinking this week, it's very interesting, I was thinking about the spread of the coronavirus, and we get daily updates. I mean, on my phone, it tells me exactly how many, how many Riverside County have been infected today, how many in, in my city, in La Quinta, or Palm Desert, or Bermuda Dunes, all kind of collectively called the Coachella Valley, or the Palm Springs area. You know, how many each city has, how many, how many our state has, how many infections. We, we get almost hourly, there are updates. You know, how many of the United States uh, have now? And it was over 50,000 uh, this last week. Over 50,000 cases were reported. Is that more testing or what? I don't know. But, and then how many, how many does the whole globe have? And, and from what I understood, doing a little research with Statista.com, it said that this last week, uh, June 26th, there were 177,000 new cases only on June 26th. And then June 28th, 189,000 new cases just on June 28th, and now there's a total of over 10 million. I don't know what it is this weekend, but over 10 million people that have been infected. And I'm thinking, we just get that moment by moment by moment. We pick up that on our phone. How many people are being infected by this virus? It's, it's kind of crazy. And yet Jesus said the gospel is going to be preached to the whole globe. Did you know, according to the global evangelization movement, I found this interesting. The seed was birthed in my mind, and I went and studied it this week. The global evangelization movement says... About 174,000 people in the world come to Christ every day. Almost exactly the number of people that are being reported anyway is being infected by the coronavirus each day, at least this last week. About 175,000 people give their lives to Christ. Now, I don't know exactly what the parameters are. I know that has to just be a generalized number, but that is there through their calculations, a general idea. 3,500 new churches are planted around the globe. Some of these very small, just maybe in a kind of an outback place, 
3,500 churches are planted every week. Now, I know we here in the West that many are closing, but 3,500 new churches are being planted every single week. And that means that this year, almost 62 million people, uh, roughly 62 million people will give their lives, come into the kingdom, and yet you very rarely will never hear that on Anderson Cooper 360. You'll never. There's no way you'll hear that. I mean, we don't get moment-by-moment updates. Well, this many people came to Christ in La Quinta or in the Riverside County this today, or this many people received the power of the Holy Spirit and have a transformed heart now. We never, we never see that. And yet, Jesus said the end won't come until this gospel is spread all over the globe. And right now, we get a parallel. We get, a, we get kind of a metaphor through the coronavirus. We see the rapidity of how quickly it's moving all over the world. And yet the gospel for the last 2,000 years is increasing and growing quicker and quicker and quicker. And yet we don't get daily things. Jesus' words are going to come to pass. The whole globe is going to get the gospel. And then the end will come. It's happening right under our nose. And listen to something else that uh, Jesus said, uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. It, you know, there, there isn't this testing that constantly goes on where they stick a swab down your, up your nose and down your throat to try to determine whether you have the Holy Spirit. There is nothing like that. Uh, it, so you're not ever going to just see it to be observed. You're going to be a literal king up on a kingdom one day when I come back, but not yet. This kingdom is something that can't be observed. People won't say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. This is happening right under our noses. Just exactly as Jesus said would happen prior to the end coming. You know, there have been wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, for really 2,000 years, who really can determine whether more earthquakes? I, I've seen studies whether more the intensity of the earthquakes is going up, and the, that seems somewhat speculative to me. I mean, I understand that they're beginning of birth pains. I get that, and sometimes we think that's compressed into a smaller time period, but we certainly see that happening over the last, um, at least certainly the last hundred years. There have been Antichrist arise and Hitler and everything else and some of those things. Those people knew exactly this is the Antichrist, it's the end of time, it's over, everything's over, it's just, this is it. And sometimes we get disillusioned by that. Well, don't, because there is a final super sign that's going to grab you, and I want it to grab you, and that's where we're going to finish this morning, and then we'll pick it up next week. Is there a missing piece? According to Jesus, I believe so. And here it is, Luke 21, again, one of the other places. He added this caveat, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and recognize that her desolation is near, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave and those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive, excuse me, and be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this gets contentious, and I don't, I don't want this morning to be contentious. I know some of you are real students of, of eschatology or 
the end of things, right? Uh, and they you study that and you've taught that. I know there are many, many in our own congregation have taught that, Pat, former pastors and, and others who've taught this. I don't want this to be a place of contention. But I do believe, and I will state pretty firmly, that I believe that at least the second part of this Luke 21 I think the first part refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some would disagree. But the second part, I think we can be clear that Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot until the first of the untils. We're talking about the great untils. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, what does that even mean? Well, Jerusalem has been under the occupation of so many different things. The Romans, the Byzantines, the Muslims, the Crusaders, the Turks, you know, and even the British, finally, before... Uh, Israel got its land back, and I'm not making a political statement here, I'm just saying, look what God's done, they're back in the land, there's over 700 prophecies in the Old Testament, talking about Israel would come from the north and the south, the east and west, return and populate their place, a lot of people think that's just kind of metaphor for the church, Uh, I would have agreed with that if I hadn't seen it with my own two eyes, I've been to Israel enough to know that Israel's reconstitution as a nation in my own heart is a direct fulfillment. Well, that didn't happen. That happened May 15th of 1948. By the way, that was the reason the guy wrote the book on 1988 uh, being the date because a generation, some believe a generation is 40 years and it happened in 48. So within the generation, Jesus said they're going to see these signs. And they and, and so he said that was had to be 1988. But on May 15th of 1948, Ben-Gurion signed into existence the modern state of Israel. But still, Jerusalem was not under their possession. But in the Six-Day War in 1967, Jerusalem became, came under the authority of the Jewish people again. Now, some would speculate, and I happen to be one of them. I'm not dogmatic about this, but would, some would say Jerusalem is no longer being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's the way I read this. It's a super sign, not only that Israel's come into existence as a nation again, but somehow, and I'm not date setting at all this morning, because there's a final piece that's even more significant than whether we get this right, but right now I'll tell you that Jerusalem is under the occupation of the Jewish people. Now I know there's uh, an issue with the Temple Mount, I won't go into that, but this is at least something that should grab your attention about the end of times, because Jesus said, it's not going to happen. The end's not going to happen until what? Until Jerusalem is no longer being trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. And it's not in our lifetime. I was born, I was three years old in 1967. This is in my lifetime. Now I'm going to have Bob and Joan read one more passage here, Matthew 23, uh, verse 37. Bob and Joan, thank you. Our second scripture today is found in Matthew chapter 23, Verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Bob and Joan. So uh, look, what what Jesus is saying, I I desired, he's looking over Jerusalem, I desired to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. I'm not going to return to you. 
You're not going to see me again. In other words, when Jesus comes back and the end of all things are come to an end, the world comes to an end and Jesus sets everything right. I'm not going, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in other words, until you give me the kind of reception that is a kingly reception. Well, what's going to have to happen for that to happen? I believe that Matthew 23 is very specific. There's going to be a massive revival among Jewish people. More Jewish people are going to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. I believe one day we'll look at Israel. That's how I read the prophets. And we're going to say that is a Jesus-centric nation. You say, well, that's impossible. I mean, Israel is one of the most secular nations on the planet. Their abortion rates and everything else are no different than any other nation in the West. Well, let me tell you something, and, and Church of the Red Door is involved in this too. We are seeing Jewish people give their lives to Jesus in ways that are not only unprecedented, but staggering. And I want to go into this just a little bit as the final sign. So, Paul's take, Romans 11, I'm going to read verses 1, 11, 12, 15, and 25 and 27. Just so you can kind of put this together, I want to try to summarize this very quickly. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people. That's the Jewish people. Has he? That's the context. May it never be. God's not rejected his people. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, is God done with the Jews? May it never be. He asks a rhetorical question, then answers his own question. But by their transgression, in other words, by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah as a nation, not everybody. Obviously, we have the New Testament. There were maybe 20,000 people who followed Jesus as Jews. By their transgression, salvation has come to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, to make them jealous. Paul's saying, look, Gentiles all over the world are beginning to embrace Jesus and have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was meant to go back to the Jews and say, wait a minute, they're taught, they know more about our God, the God of our forefathers, than we do. We've drifted far. We've become a religion of good works. What does this even mean? You know, most, most Jews don't even go to temple anymore. They're not conservative or reformed or certainly not orthodox. Most are just secular people who identify as being Jewish. And it says, and then verse 12 says, if their transgression, meaning rejecting Jesus, was riches for the world. In other words, when they rejected it, it spread out all over the world through persecution. And the message of Jesus left Jerusalem and went up around the Mediterranean and on into modern-day Turkey and around into modern-day Greece and Rome, and then eventually from there, was spread all over the world. In other words, as they rejected the Messiah, the message, like a dandelion, blew out all over the world, just as Jesus had prophesied would happen before the end would come. But wait a minute, there's one more piece here. He said, if, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, when the Jewish people see Jesus as the Messiah in a large, significant way, what's going to happen? Well, he says, if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, many throughout human history have believed that as the Jewish people embrace Jesus, it will usher in one of the greatest final kingdom harvests that we'll ever see. And that was true among many of the founders of the Americas. Many of the Puritans believed this. I'm going to read Spurgeon in just a second. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now he's writing to the Gentiles. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. 
Now we get our second until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What Paul, I believe, is saying and many other people who take the Bible very seriously believe. And again, I, I have friends who do not see it this way. And I, I think this will be a truth that is going to be re, reclaimed. I really do. I think it's happening even now in our own lifetime. People are finally saying, look, I've held to these particular ideas about Israel and, and, and their identity that somehow there's going to be a massive revival among Jewish people, Church of the Red Door. Again, our involvement with Israel College of the Bible, our uh, seeing uh, Jewish men and women preach the gospel to other Jewish men and women and having them begin to ask these questions, who was Jesus? And many, many are coming to faith in Jesus. And they're still Jewish. They haven't lost their Jewishness because they embrace the Jewish Messiah. That's an absurdity. They're more Jewish, I say, than they've ever been by embracing the Jewish Messiah. Now listen to C.H. Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. I think we do not attach enough importance to the restoration of the Jews. But certainly if there's anything promised in the Bible, it's this. That day, the day shall come when the Jews who were the first apostles to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the first missionaries to us who were far off, shall be gathered in again. And then he uses this word until. Until that shall be, the fullness of the church's glory can never come. Matchless benefits to the world are bound up with the restoration of Israel. Their gathering shall be as life from the dead. Spurgeon himself was saying, and many, many others, a long line of which I could read on and on, we don't have time, have said, look, something's going to happen when Jewish men and women begin to embrace Jesus as the culminating act of redemptive history, Matthew 23, until they give me this extraordinary kingly procession again when I return, I'm not going to return. The end's not going to come. Hosea 3, verse 4 and 5. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. They're not going to have a temple. Many days. But afterward, the sons of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Even Hosea, writing during the time of Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus, not the King David they're talking about is not a resurrected King David. It's Jesus on the throne of, and in the line of King David. So I can tell you in closing that the, there are three primary super signs. Look, these are unprecedented times. Yes, there's earthquakes and famines and birth pains and all those are true. But what can I stake my understanding of the end of time on? What, where can I place that? And in my heart, three things definitive that we know are true. Number one, the gospel has to be preached before the end would come. Why? Jesus said it and the gospel is being preached. There's, I don't know if there's a people group that has not at least had the gospel preached, and now through Wycliffe and others, and Laura and I support Wycliffe as an example, uh, pretty much every translation, there's still a few just uh, very remote languages that they don't have a Bible in, but the, the world is pretty much being covered. At the same time, number two, 
Jerusalem is not being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. No more Romans or Byzantines or Turks or Crusaders or British or anybody. The Jews have Jerusalem back. And Jesus said, until that happens, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled in Jerusalem, he won't come back. The end won't come. And then finally, Jewish men and women are turning to Jesus. Now, it's not just some future moment. And I would challenge you, please, and I put this up, guys, on the bottom of the screen. Go to imetmessiah.com. Go to imetmessiah.com. Listen to the testimonies out of Israel. Uh, and then many people, many Jews around the world, just talking about how they've met Jesus. This is unprecedented. Jewish men and women are coming to faith and Jesus is the Messiah. Period. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I know it to be true. We have people in our own congregation. More are coming to faith than ever. And it's increasing. We're in the early stages. When will the end come? I think all of Israel shall be saved. What does that mean, all of Israel? I know it's who's Jewish and all that. I'm just telling you, these are the three things I look for when I'm asked, do you think it's the end of things? What about the 666 and the Antichrist and all the different things that we've kind of been caught up with? I think we, as a church, we've missed the primary point, the evangelization of the world, the fact that Jerusalem is no longer being trampled underfoot, and the fact that Jewish men and women are coming to faith in Jesus. Is the end, I don't know, is it another 100 years? Will this take 200 years? I have no idea. I will never set a date. Jesus was clear. He said, not, not even the Son of Man knows the date. But I will tell you that these things, from my perspective, signal that, yeah, the culminating act of redemptive history started with the Jews, it went to the Gentiles, went all the way around the world, every tribe, every tongue, and it finally comes back, and then at the end of time, many Jewish men and women see Jesus as the Messiah. Next week, I'm going to go in, well, what can we do about this? Is there anything we can do about this? Is there something that we can do to hasten the day of the Lord, as Peter said? I think in many ways there, there is something we as Gentiles and the church can do. Now, the church is composed of Jews and Gentiles, by the way, but what can we do now? I'm going to give you a picture, and we're going to go back into the Old Testament. I think it'll explode in your heart and your mind next week. I'm excited about it. So, I'm going to turn this over now to uh, Pastor Paul. We're going to take communion on this beautiful July 4th weekend. And then at the end, hang around for, at the end of communion, I'm going to have, we're, we're starting to starting this process. I'm going to have the McNets. They're going to come on. They're going to ask a few strategic questions that maybe if you're gathering with a few other friends or, you know, you have some people or you just talk or you get on a Zoom call or whatever it is, that you can say, well, what did you think about this? And a few questions about this morning's message that might help because we're still not able to meet. So anyway, love you very much. Uh, Paul, take it away.